biggest girl group in history. Five women who changed the face of pop music through the magic of girl power. But the ride to the top was far from smooth. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, hello. Hi. Oh my gosh, look, it's Christmas Day today. It's Christmas. <laughs> and we decided for this summer series of Scandal, we would do the thing that feels most, I don't know, summery to me. Summery, sugary, fun. It's a three-part series on the Spice Girls because that's what we thought you would want over your break. Yeah, and I hope we're joining you on some road trips, guys. I hope some boyfriends, some girlfriends, some sisters have been roped into listening to this because someone's decided to put it on on a Christmas Day road trip. Yeah, that's such a good point. Shout out to anyone listening to right now in the car (laughs) against their will. We are thinking of you. We'll try to keep you entertained. Now, what we're doing with this series is obviously tracking the road rise of the Spice Girls. I mean, of course, for me, they're probably the first musical act I remember being even interested in as a kid. These, like the Spice Girls, were on rotation along with Britney Spears in my household. The thing about the Spice Girls is, for me, I feel like I just have little like dottings of memories. Mm. But I realised going through this timeline that I was actually really, really young when they were like exploding. I was too young. So I must have been obsessed with them after they'd already disbanded. Who was your favourite? Um, who was my favourite? Mine is so clear. I liked Sporty Spice. I considered myself Baby Spice. <laughs> uh, did you? I think that everybody loved Baby Spice. Everyone loved Baby Spice. And I remember she had blonde hair and I had blonde hair and she loved Baby Blue and I loved Baby Blue. Well, I was like, <laughs> I love sport. So I simply must be Sporty Spice. Now, it's so interesting to me. I truly didn't know how few years these guys were together. Oh, my God. It was like a blip on the radar. Uh, but how it's etched in history is insane and and they've all gone on to completely different directions in life after the band broke up some of the women are pretty private others are more famous than ever hello victoria beckham yeah hello victoria beckham and hello to drive to survive fans to jerry halliwell yeah like they've all done very different things with their lives and I am just fascinated about these guys, how they were essentially plucked from obscurity to become some of the most famous people in the world. Yeah, I'll be honest with the listeners as well. One of the main reasons I wanted to do this series was, of course, for the nostalgia and the sugar and the fun, but also because I've always been intrigued by the headlines that there was a romantic slash sexual relationship between two of the bandmates. I've never really deeped it before. I've never looked into it. We are doing that in this series. It is fascinating and we can't wait to get into it. Yeah, just a quick trigger warning before we rewind as well. This episode will discuss eating disorders and maybe triggering for some listeners. So if you or a friend needs help, please contact the Butterfly Foundation on 1-800-ED-HOPE. All right, Zara, we are all the way back in February 1994 when a humble little ad appeared in the British weekly newspaper, The Stage. Yes, now it read, Wanted, are you 18 to 23 with the ability to sing and dance? Are you streetwise, outgoing, ambitious and dedicated? Heart Management are a widely successful music industry management consortium currently forming a choreographed singing, dancing, all-female pop act for a recording deal. Open audition. Dance World, 16 Bulletin Street, Friday, 4th of March, 11 till 5.30 p.m. 
please bring sheet music or a backing cassette. Now, Heart Management, the management company that put this audition together, was run by a father and son duo named Bob and Chris Herbert. Now, Bob had a tiny bit of experience in this kind of game. He had managed a teen pop duo called Gloss, whereas his son, 22-year-old Chris Herbert, had never done this before. This was his first foray into artist management. Yeah, now the ad resulted in 400 women turning up to a dance studio in London on the 4th of March for the chance to audition to be in a girl group, which kind of speaks to the relative simplicity of the music industry at the time. There were no emails, no industry plans, just an (laughs) ad in a newspaper and 400 women who want to give it a shot. Yeah, for sure. Speaking about what he was looking for at this audition, Chris Herbert said years later... I approached it as if I was a casting director, finding characters that appeal to every colour in the rainbow, finding a gang of girls everyone could relate to. Yeah, at this audition, three young women, a 19-year-old Melanie Brown and two 20-year-olds by the names of Melanie Chisholm and Victoria Adams stood out from the crowd. For her singing audition, Melanie Brown sang The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston, Melanie Chisholm sang I'm So Excited by the Pointer Sisters, and Victoria Adams took more of a musical theatre route singing a tune from Cabaret. Yeah, the next month, the two Melanies and Victoria were amongst 12 girls who were invited back for a second audition. There was another young woman who turned up at that audition as well, a 22-year-old Jerry Halliwell, who had been on holiday for the first audition but had persuaded the Herberts to allow her to be at the callback. Yeah, at the end of the gruelling audition process, which also involved a studio session to record a version of Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours, Bob and Chris had their girl group, or at least they were pretty sure they had it. Yeah, that group consisted of Melanie Brown, or Mel B, Melanie Chisholm, Mel C, Victoria Adams, Jerry Halliwell, and a 17-year-old girl by the name of Michelle Stevenson. Now, Michelle actually scored the highest out of all of the girls in the first audition after after she sang Don't Be a Stranger by Dina Carroll. Yeah, now under the guiding eye of the Herberts, the girls got to work. They settled on the name Touch for the band for the time being. I actually don't mind that. I don't mind it either. And they actually moved in together for their quote-unquote training period. Now, unfortunately for Michelle Stevenson, spoiler alert, it became pretty (laughs) clear very quickly that she just wasn't going to be a good fit for the group. I mean, firstly, at 17, she was significantly younger than the other girls And they all definitely felt that age gap. But it actually also went a bit deeper than that. Now, according to the book Spice Girls by Sean Smith, and we actually do lean on this book quite a bit for the first episode. Shout out to Sean Smith. He really did some heavy lifting for us. Yeah, and we will put a link to buy this book in the show notes as well because it's an absolutely fascinating read. But Sean Smith wrote, Relations within touch continued to slide within the first month. The gang of four were exasperated by what they perceived as Michelle's lack of commitment. She wasn't putting in the work to improve her dancing, preferring, they said, to top up her tan at lunchtime, rather than copy Jerry's lead and practice hard to try and catch up with the other girls. Perhaps tellingly, Michelle still had the intention of going to university in the autumn. She also had a Saturday job at Harrods that she didn't give up. Bob Herbert explained she would never have gelled, so we had to let her go. And so they did. Michelle was booted from the group before they were even, I mean, really a group at all. For her part, Michelle has spoken publicly about this time in her life in the years since. She's shared that her mother was struggling with breast cancer at the time that she joined Touch, which of course took a significant toll on her ability to really commit to the group. She's also said she wasn't really a fan of the music that they were rehearsing at the time and that it was a little too poppy for her. 
Yeah, the remaining girls in the group also haven't been exactly kind about <laughs> Michelle in the media over the years. Kicking her while she's down. Yeah, as per the Spice Girls. One of the four who remained, Victoria, was by far the rudest about Michelle, describing her voice as, and I quote, cruise ship operatic. Her <laughs> dancing is having less rhythm than a cement mixer and saying that she couldn't be asked to improve. It's pretty brutal, particularly given Michelle scored the highest at the first audition. She couldn't have been like the talentless schmuck. No, <laughs> And also it's like she missed out on like a life changing (laughs) OPR. Like I don't know if she needs to be copying it more than she probably is, I don't know, berating herself maybe. (laughs) Now with Michelle gone, touch remember short and the Herbert still wanted the group to be a five piece. So they actually set out to find their final member. Now they didn't want to go through that months long audition process again. So they asked the girl's vocal coach, a woman named Pepe Lemaire, if she had any recommendations And Peppy did. Peppy did. Now, the Herberts wanted the fifth group member to be younger than the rest to bring the average age of the group down. I mean, again, I do feel sorry for Michelle. She was younger than the rest and she was considered, what, too young? Yeah. Well, maybe in maturity. It's like they wanted a young person to bring that youth, but also a mature young person who wasn't going to kind of be really different to the other girls. Well, luckily, Peppy knew just the right person for the gig. A few years back, she had worked with a girl called Emma Bunton. Now, Emma was 18, Zara, and her vibes were immaculate for the group. Absolutely immaculate. As per the Spice Girls by Sean Smith, Chris Herbert thought she was perfect. She was very cute, very nice, with a sweet voice, a very pop voice. I really liked her character a lot. It was one of those light bulb moments when I realised she was definitely something we didn't have. It was immediate for me. Now, of course, the other girls had to approve of Emma before she could become an official member of the group. As per the book, Emma seemed very young to the other four. She certainly looked young, but they soon realised that looks can be deceiving and Emma was good fun. After a couple of days, they were all getting along so well that Chris said to the girls, look, are you interested in Emma becoming the fifth member? And they said, absolutely. The five Spice Girls were set. Yeah, so now at this point we had Mel B, Mel C, Jerry, Victoria and Emma locked in as the official members of the group, which at this stage was still called Touch. We know we're fiddling with the timeline a little bit here, but we're going to actually give you guys a bit of a synopsis on who each member of this band was at this point in time. Yeah, let's start with Mel B, shall we? So Mel B was born in Leeds in 1975. She grew up and attended stage school as a high school student. According to Spice Girls by Sean Smith, Mel B experienced racism from a really early age. She said that as a mixed race woman, she received ignorant and hateful catcalls while wandering around her hometown. She's also said that she grew up in a really loving and supportive family. And it was her mum that actually found the original ad in the stage paper for the girl group audition and passed it on to Mel B. Mm, As a teen, she did struggle quite deeply with mental illness, something that she would unfortunately struggle with for a large part of her adult life too. She said in her biography that at that time when she was a teenager, she felt really out of place and misunderstood by the world. Yeah, after her time at the Performing Arts High School in Leeds, she went on to the audition circuit. Now, she was only 17, but she had a pretty tough skin when it came to rejection and did narrowly miss out on a leading role on the British soap Coronation Street shortly before her audition for the girls group. Whenever we do stories like this, (laughs) 
I always think about the Gwyneth Paltrow movie Sliding, Sliding doors. doors and just how differently people's lives can look. The universe has a plan, guys. Yeah, well, <laughs> it does. Around the time of the audition, Mel V was working at a call centre and as a podium dancer on Friday and Saturday nights at a club in Leeds. And her main strength, actually, was her skill as a dancer, although she had invested in singing lessons around this time to kind of broaden her chances on the audition circuit. Clever cookie. Next up, we have Victoria. Now, before we deep dive into her backstory... Obviously, we've already done a scandal series on David and Victoria Beckham, which goes into so much detail about Victoria Adams. We know a lot of you would have already listened to that series, so we're going to try and keep this pretty short and sweet. Victoria Adams was born in 1974 in Essex. Now, that clip from the Beckham documentary on Netflix went viral this year. When, you know, David forces Victoria to own up that she was dropped off at school in a Rolls Royce. We should clarify, though, for a time, Victoria's family would have been considered working class. So she wasn't technically lying. She was maybe just omitting the fact that it wasn't later on, the way. yeah, they yeah. were working class and then they were quite wealthy. Yeah. Her dad, Tony Adams, founded an electronics wholesale business that did become very successful, but it didn't start out that way. The company was started in his garage and grew over the years to the point where he was able to purchase his pride and joy, the Rolls Royce. And so the story goes, and we told this story in our Victorian David Beckham series, that Victoria was so embarrassed by the ostentatious car that she refused to be dropped <laughs> off at school in it. I mean, whether there's some mayo on that story. <laughs> it doesn't uh, feel like the thing that the Victoria... Like, we know Victoria now. She loves a brand. She loves luxury. I mean, would I have ever been embarrassed to be dropped off in a Rolls Royce? I can't guarantee I <laughs> As a kid, she was obsessed with the musical fame and was so inspired by the story that she set her sights on attending a performing arts primary school. It's very young. Yeah. According to one of her teachers, she was a bit shy, but definitely... One of the hardest working students there. I mean, she was like six. (laughs) (laughs) By the time she was in high school, her dad's business had absolutely taken off and they were doing very well financially. After graduating high school, she attended a theatre school on a scholarship, which set her up perfectly for the Spice Girls audition. Around the time of her Spice audition, she was actually engaged to her boyfriend at the time, an electrician by the name Mark Wood. Now, they met in her family's kitchen when he was installing a burglar alarm. Very wholesome. Now, spoiler, as again, they didn't end up getting married. <laughs> they actually split shortly after the official formation of the Spice Girls. Mm, bye, Mark. Now, we're going to get to Jerry Halliwell after the break. But first, a word from today's sponsor. All right, Zara. So Jerry Halliwell was born in Hertfordshire to her Spanish mother, Anna Maria, and her British father, Lawrence. She actually grew up on a council estate in North Watford. Yeah, as she grew up, Jerry discovered pop icons like George Michael and Madonna, and she adored them and therefore set her sights on becoming famous as soon as she possibly could. Mm. Now, although she had no formal training like the rest of the Spice Girls, Jerry landed herself a few jobs as a nightclub dancer after she graduated, and it was a throwaway comment about her plump body from a fellow dancer 
that led Jerry to go on what she says was her first ever diet. And she would later claim that this was the biggest mistake of her life. Yeah, we'll get back to that in a second. At just 19 years old, Jerry decided to pursue her celebrity dreams abroad, getting a job as a dancer at a nightclub in Mallorca, Spain. While she was in Mallorca and upon her return to England, she did a small amount of topless modeling, but she didn't like it very much as she later told Michael Parkinson. She said, I found it very dull standing there with the window open to keep your nipples firm was not good. Fair enough. (laughs) While she was on a mission to get famous, Jerry took up a massive array of odd jobs, teaching aerobics, washing hair, waiting tables, and somehow in between it all, she took a course in television presenting. She eventually landed another job as a model for a Turkish game show, which meant she actually was flying at this point to Istanbul on her weekends. The OG girl boss. I think, I mean, if there's one thing I've learnt about Jerry from researching this is you will not meet, I don't think, a bigger hustler. A more industrious woman. (laughs) She is one of the most industrious women I've come across doing this and I cannot yes. wait to dive into her more. Oh, same. Before then, though, Jerry's beloved father, Lawrence, actually died around this time that she was working on the Turkish game show. And it was the beginning of a really tough time for her. She struggled with grief and the pressures of trying to make it in the entertainment industry. And she began to battle with anorexia and bulimia. This was something that Jerry continued to struggle with over the following years. Mm, it was at this point in her life that she came across that little ad in the stage newspaper which she would eventually respond to and have her whole life change. That's Jerry. Next up, we've got Mel C. Yes, we do. So Mel C was born in 1974 in Merseyside. And before she came along, her mother Joan had actually been a singer for a, a, a huge part of her life. Her parents actually separated not long after she was born and they both started new relationships and had children with their respective partners. She did mention that this sort of made her feel pretty isolated as a kid. She took up dancing as a child and it was pretty clear from early on that this was going to be something that she was going to take very seriously, Mish. Yeah, apparently, and I found this really interesting when Eilish told us about it, despite her sporty look and her sporty brand with Spice Girls, Mel C was not a tomboy when she was in school. As per Sean Smith's book, her old schoolmates do not remember Melanie as a tomboy kicking a ball around with the lads. A friend, Mark Delaney, agreed that it was rubbish that she was a tomboy. She was always very girly and ballet mad, he said. Yeah, Mel C wanted fame. She even scrawled Melanie Chisholm Superstar on one of her school books and took part in school productions as a teen while winning countless trophies as a dancer. Now, once she graduated high school, she moved on to study singing, dancing and musical theatre at uni. And at one point, she very nearly got a role in the chorus of Cats on the West End. Now, it wasn't meant to be because, of course, bigger things were headed her way. Mm, And then finally, the youngest of the bandmates, Emma Bunton. She was born in 1976 in London. And despite being the youngest member of the band, was arguably the most experienced when it came to show business. She actually started modelling from the age of two. Yeah, she spent a fair bit of her childhood modelling for ads and it was common to see photos of a young Emma Bunton in magazines. As a little girl, her face was even on tins of spaghetti shapes, which is quite a fun fact. Now, all the money she made as a child model actually went into a secure bank account, which her parents would later use to pay the fees for her time 
at theatre school. Yeah, her family weren't particularly well off as she was growing up. She actually had to leave that theatre school as a teen because her parents couldn't afford to send her there anymore. But then the school actually decided to award her a scholarship so that she could return. After school, she auditioned for the British soap EastEnders and just like her bandmates, came extremely close to getting a leading role on the show but missed out after all the callbacks. Yeah. Now, of course, a young Emma, fresh out of stage school, would find success in the entertainment business elsewhere, just like her four bandmates. So now we can get back to our proper timeline, Mm. right? The five piece are together and it's 1994. They are, of course, as a reminder, at this point called Touch. Now, Heart Management were also working with another player to get the girl band off the ground. And his name was Chick Murphy. He was actually this UK businessman and was essentially the person financing the girl group at the time. Mm. To understand a bit about Chick, he made a fortune importing foreign cars into the UK And he apparently translated this skill to music. So he would finance overseas acts who wanted to perform in the UK and vice versa for British acts that wanted to grow their international following. I guess he was just kind of like a rich honcho. It sounds like he was just a bit savvy. Yeah. Like Like kind of savvy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like a savvy, rich businessman that knew how to build acts. New stuff. (laughs) New stuff about bringing stuff to the UK and bring stuff from the UK to the world. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) By August 1994, the girls were living together and pretty much living and breathing this pop group journey. They rehearsed all day every day preparing for an upcoming showcase that Bob and Chris had organised for them. Apparently, the whole arrangement was costing Chick Murphy about £1,000 per week. Now, the idea with this showcase was that the girls were going to demonstrate their abilities as a group to a bunch of industry heavyweights, including superstar songwriters and producers who could help them craft an album. And then from there, Bob and Chris wanted to seek out a record deal later. Yeah. This is weird. Like, we need to put this on the record that... The way this all worked was strange because they were trying to generate buzz in an industry for a girl group that they didn't actually formally have signed, manage. No, well, they, there was no contract in place. Now, of course, it was also a great opportunity to generate buzz within the industry that they wanted to conquer. And as we said, it was a fairly solid plan, apart from the fact Touch did not have a contract with Heart Management or Chick Murphy or anyone. They were completely untethered. At this point, the fact that Hart were their managers was kind of a an understanding. Yeah, it was, it was like, like vibes. We, yeah. we manage you in we a vibe. We found you, we put you together. Yeah, but and we, we bankroll you. We pay you, we make sure you're all living together, you're training together under our guidance, but there was nothing in place. It's like a pinky promise. Yeah, now it was actually... Chick's idea to keep the girls out of a contract during this period as per Spice Girls by Sean Smith. Chris Herbert thought the girls were showing enough progress for him to start talking seriously with his partners about giving them a proper contract. Chick wasn't keen and Chris thought him pretty cynical about their prospects. Chris explained, his way of doing things was to make everyone involved feel kind of insecure. Don't bank on it and don't assume this is certain sort of thing. And by doing that, the girls felt quite insecure about their position. 
It was his old school way of managing acts. Make them feel like they're replaceable and we'll get the best out of them because they'll be constantly fighting for their position. Mm, Not locking the girls into a contract turned out to be... The biggest mistake of Bob, Chris and Chick's entire careers. In fact, it's probably the biggest career mistake (laughs) anyone's ever made under the sun ever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, talk about underselling these girls because the girls had four songs prepared for their showcase, which was set for December 7, 1994. For the record, none of these songs saw the light of day. Now, on the day of the showcase, they performed the same 20-minute set of those four songs over and over and over as guests wandered in and out of the venue. Now, it wasn't exactly glamorous, but it did succeed in generating the buzz that heart management were hoping for. I can see actually how this would work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's also worth noting that even at this very early stage, the girls were so sure that the right move was to showcase their individuality within the group. They weren't trying to blend as this like one homogenous thing. They wanted to stand out as individual members. That's why they didn't make an effort to match their outfits for the showcase. And they also didn't spotlight any one member as like a leader of the group. They were all on the same level footing. Yeah. The showcase was a really incredible success for the girls and it gave them a sense of confidence that kicked in immediately. As Chris Herbert later said, it was amazing to watch because they held court with the audience. You got all these multi-million selling writers and producers and the girls were firing questions at them. They completely turned it. Particularly Jerry. She was interviewing them. What skills have you got that we can use? She would ask. And why do you think you're good enough to write songs for us? (laughs) It couldn't have gone better. Now, this showcase was a really pivotal moment in the Spice Girls story for a few reasons. Firstly, it was obviously a massive confidence boost, but more than that, it was pretty eye-opening for them because it was the first time they realised how valuable they could be as an act. Jerry Halliwell, in particular, really noticed this. Boy, did she ever. Now, it was also the moment that Bob and Chris Herbert realised they had made a colossal error in their plan to turn touch into a global phenomenon They had showed off this buzzy, zeitgeisty girl group to all of the industry heavyweights before they had a contract signed. Naturally, that was a big mistake, a huge mistake, because after the showcase, Jerry Halliwell spearheaded a secret plan for the girls to leave heart management behind and move on to bigger and better things. Apparently, while they had learned a lot during their time at heart, the Spice Girls, or Touch at this point, felt that the process had all been a bit slow. Jerry in particular felt this. She was slightly older than the other girls and she desperately wanted to get the show on the road. Yeah, plus these showcase attendees were very big in the industry. They had more cash than heart management and that's what Jerry and the rest of the girls wanted. Now, I think what's really important to note here and I think something that our researcher Eilish wanted to note is like Jerry is the driving force in these early movements like obviously the girls banded together Mm. but Jerry is the one to spotlight. We love a sporting analogy here on Scandal and if one was the captain coach hybrid it's Jerry Halliwell. Absolutely so while Bob, Chris and Chick scrambled to get a contract together before the girls walked away, Jerry and the girls booked secret meeting after secret meeting with the industry types that they'd met through the showcase. Yeah, while they never had an honest or frank discussion about what had changed between heart and touch Bob, Chris and Chick certainly noticed that something was happening and that Jerry was leading that thing and they were very concerned. 
Bob Herbert later wrote, The response we had from the writers and producers went to Jerry's head, and from that point onwards she became more and more uncontrollable and wanted to take over the running of the group. Obsessed. It's interesting that he sees it that way instead of like, once these women had been affirmed by the most powerful people in the industry, we realised we had fucked up by trying to take them for a ride. Absolutely. There was even a discussion amongst Heart Management and Chick about replacing Jerry and Mel B, who, like Jerry, was fairly headstrong and confident, and those two had formed a pretty close bond. So the two of them together were quite a powerful force, and I actually think at this point they started to scare Heart a little bit. (laughs) I love it. It's like women... With the brain. Yeah. And women with a bit of get up and go. And with start, ambition. Yeah. Their original ad, they were calling out for people with ambition and they found... A bit too much ambition. <laughs> yeah. Now, it was too late for heart management. They presented the girls with a fairly standard management contract. They wanted to take a 25% management cut, which would be reduced to 20% after the first year, which left the girls with only 15% each. The girls weren't interested, but they did have to stall their deal with heart for a little longer so that it could actually land on the management they actually wanted. Mm, while they were busy stalling this deal and this contract with Heart Management, in January 1995, they had already begun writing some songs with some of the incredible songwriters and producers they had met at the showcase. During that period, in January 1995, they wrote two songs that would go on to become huge hits. They wrote Wannabe and Two Become One. Yeah. Another thing worth mentioning is that the girls really did play a big role in writing their songs. They always split songwriting credits evenly. And while none of them were trained in any instruments, they'd often bring lyrics and buzzy phrases to songwriting sessions and contribute a bunch to the overall process by developing vocal melodies and harmonies as well as lyrics. With Wannabe though, there was one member missing from the writing session It was Victoria. Mm. Now, as the story goes, Victoria had to attend a wedding on the day that the rest of the girls wrote Wannabe. And because she wasn't there, the other girls didn't save any solo lines for her, which is why she still, to this day, doesn't sing solo in the song. Yeah, Victoria not singing solo on Wannabe unfortunately really sowed the seeds of a rumour that would follow her around to this day. The rumour that she couldn't actually sing at all. Now, we know for certain that she went to music school and that her cabaret-themed audition went super, super well. But this has lasted. This rumour has such staying power. I actually saw a TikTok video of the Spice Girls performing Wannabe. This was like, it would have come up on my TikTok for you page last week, maybe the week before. And the comment section was littered with sentiment that Victoria didn't get a solo because Victoria can't sing. But that's still what I thought to this day. Oh, my God. All because she went to a wedding. Yeah. Now, I don't know. You might think it's a bit rough that the girls didn't save any lines for her to sing in her absence, but this was the attitude they had at the time, apparently particularly Jerry, that nothing should be prioritised over the band. And if you don't step up or if you go to a wedding, you miss out. (laughs) And in this instance, Victoria missed out, which is savage, but I guess... You don't become the biggest band in the world without some of these really savage ideals about what it takes to make it. I agree. I I kind of love it. I think it's the only way to do it. Well, I kind of think we're at a point in our culture, understandably, where the pendulum on work has swung quite far, where it's just like work doesn't define us and 
you know, young people have a very different attitude towards what success looks like in the workplace and things like that. But the older I get, the more I'm like, that's all fine. But you won't get to the upper echelons of any industry you're working in. No. If you don't want to actually go to the ends of the earths to get there. A thousand percent. If you want to do pretty well in whatever you're pursuing, then you can put in pretty decent hours. If you want to be the best of the best, you need to grind. Like totally. you need to be the Jerry Halliwell of the group who's saying, this is number one for me and my time commitments will reflect that. Absolutely. Around this time, the girls decided it was time to finally settle on a better name than Touch. I am intrigued by that. I actually think Touch was fine. I mean, they did end up making the right call. I know. Because- <laughs> there were a few different stories about how the name Spice came about for what it's worth. They definitely wanted something that had five letters, one for each member. One story is that Jerry just had a brainwave during an aerobics class with Mel C, turning to her and saying, I've got it. Another theory pushed by the media was that their neighbours had a dog (laughs) named Spice and they were constantly calling out to it, which sparked the idea. Chris Herbert reckons it came from a demo they'd written called Sugar and Spice. So really no consistent story here. No. What we know for sure is that they changed their name to Spice and then a little while later, which we'll get to when it comes up in the episodes, they rebranded to Spice Girls. By March 1995, the girls decided it was finally time to get out on their own and leave heart management for good. And because they had never signed a contract, this process was relatively easy. Yeah. Now, there is also a bit of a disagreement (laughs) on how this went down. According to Chris Herbert, the girls staged a massive argument between them, making Hart think that they were on the verge of breaking up. In actuality, the girls were stronger as a group than ever and had devised a plan to quickly move out of the house they'd shared, the one that had been paid for by Chick Murphy. And he says they never spoke to him again after the staged argument. I'm going to be honest, I don't really understand this story. Oh, really? I kind of think putting myself back in my 19 or 20-year-old brain, I think this would be something I would reach for. So Conflict avoidant. I agree, but I'm kind of just trying to work out. The top line story isn't making a lot of sense. (laughs) Are we assuming the girls got together, said, let's pretend to have a big falling out, leave the house and never have to speak about them again? Yes. I can totally see this being the case. A bunch of young people thinking, how the hell do we get out of this awkward, incredibly awkward situation? Well, we convince them that we're actually all, we've had this massive row and we've all left the house in a flurry and then that's it. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) I I can as well. No, you're right. Now, Jerry generally agreed with that series of events but denied that they were being duplicitous. Rather, she says they were just taking control of their careers. She also does deny that there was like a staged argument, but I don't know. (laughs) She said they covertly moved out of the house, leaving a short thank you note for Hart and Chick that also told them that Spice would not be signing their contract, and that was that. For the Sex and City fans, that's giving big breakup via post-it note energy from one season of Sex and the City. Now, according to Victoria, Jerry devised a plan to retrieve the master recordings of Wannabe and Two Become One from the heart management offices before they cut ties with the Herberts for good. This is crazy. This is amazing because obviously in 1995, these recordings were only available via like physical copies, which were located at the heart management offices. Yes. Now in her autobiography, Learning to Fly, she painted this as like kind of a spy mission. She (laughs) said, I don't know how Jerry actually managed to get the tape. Everything was so Bonnie and Clyde. She had it hidden in her knickers. (laughs) 
It's amazing. I mean, a couple of years, for what it's worth, after the Spice Girls properly took off, they were asked about their first managers in an interview with Rolling Stone. And here's what they had to say then. You know, I feel quite sorry for them, really, says Jerry. They had an idea, says Mel C. They just didn't know what to do with it. At that point, Mel B chimed in and said, if they'd listened to our ideas, then maybe it would have been a different story. Our ideas were flowing so fast, they couldn't keep up with us, could they? Said Mel C. Rolling Stone then wrote, the first managers were a father and son team, Bob and Chris Herbert. Usually in interviews, the Spice Girls don't mention them or pretend to have forgotten their names. Today, they are a little more relaxed. We used to call the manager, what's your job, Bob? Jerry says, we knew it wasn't right. <laughs> now, first of all, good job reading out that because that was a confusing little passage yeah. and I think you did I very, got there. very well. So to be clear, Spice have left the Herbert heart management thing, heart management situation. But they've left without having anything else locked in. Yeah. So I know originally before they were trying to stall Hart until they signed someone else, but they didn't actually end up doing that. They now took their careers into their own hands. They all agreed that Wannabe was the strongest track amongst a sea of demos. And they agreed that this was their best shot at landing a deal with a big-time manager. And they realised that they needed a big-time manager if they wanted to take over the world. (laughs) Their method was to overwhelm stuffy management and record label offices with their youth enthusiasm, rushing into these buildings pretty much like a flash mob and performing wannabe in a flurry of energy (laughs) amongst desks and water coolers. It was a pretty irresistible presentation and eventually became the inspiration for their music video for Wannabe. Yeah. Someone who certainly couldn't resist was the hotshot manager Simon Fuller of 19 Management. At the time, Simon was 35 years old, but he had already become a millionaire as an artist manager by the time that he was 25. He had actually been managing the UK superstar Annie Lennox at the time. The girls did their regular wannabe flash mob routine for Simon and he was impressed. During the meeting, he explained that he could make them not big just in the UK, but in America as well. Apparently, he told them, I think you're fabulous. I just love this so much. I love how... The go get him attitude. Well, that's the thing. I think this has been erased out of their story. Mm. I still think they're considered just sort of like this poppy girl band that like sold out really early. And Overnight success. Yeah. But this is just, I know we used the word industrious before. It is deeply industrious and creative. And brave. It's it takes so balls. brave. Totally. They wanted it and that's why they got it. In an interview decades later, he said, it was quite unusual to have these five young girls just come <laughs> bounding into the office with confidence and say, you have to manage us and we're not leaving until you agree. It was very contagious, that energy. Now, Spice were all in agreement that they wanted Simon to be their manager and the agreement was practically made immediately. Now the girls had pretty much the biggest music manager in the UK on their side and his first job was finding them a record record deal. Now, his method was essentially to send them around to all the interested labels to perform their wannabe flash mob, (laughs) then sit back and wait for the phone to ring. And ring it did, Mish. Yeah, several major labels were extremely interested. Spice ended up signing with Virgin Records, favouring their reputation as like a cool record label. And they were keen as well to be the only major pop act represented by Virgin. They didn't want to be competing with anyone else on a record label's books. 
their advance for signing with Virgin was £1 million. Yeah, now 50000 of those £1 million ended up going to Heart Management as a good faith reimbursement of what they'd actually originally invested into the girls' career before they signed with Simon and Virgin. And apparently Chick estimated that the Touch project had cost him around £20,000. So at the time wasn't a bad profit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not just, the business deal you'd want looking back. No, but. it's not the deal that could have been, but he didn't lose money. Now, especially considering we know the girls went on to sell 80 million records worldwide. <laughs> By July 95, the girls had a big shop management deal with Simon Fuller and a £1 million record deal with Virgin, which was the home at the time of Lenny Kravitz and Janet Jackson. Now, not wanting to fumble their pretty monumental investment, Virgin waited patiently for the exact right time to release the exact right song to launch Spice into the stratosphere. They ummed and ahed about Wannabe. Record execs didn't quite get the kind of eccentric pop rap party track until it was like remixed or kind of like, not exactly remixed, but actually literally mixed again by a different engineer, which helped highlight each vocal line in a much stronger way. So they had to fiddle with the track before they felt like it was ready. Yeah, they were perfectionistic. Led by Jerry and Mel B, the band was determined to have Wannabe as their lead single. After that new mix, they were successful, but they'd have to wait a little while longer. They actually tweaked their name one last time first because before Wannabe was released, Simon flew the girls to Los Angeles as part of his world domination business plan. He wanted the girls to kind of get familiar with the music industry in America and also start some conversations about a potential future movie deal too. Now, there was a rapper in the US at the time who was doing quite well called Spice One and the girls weren't keen on being confused with any other musical act. So inspired by how record execs would greet them in meetings, as in here come the Spice Girls, they decided to make one final tweak to their name and from then on were known as Spice Girls. It's kind of crazy to think back and realise how long the promotion for Wannabe went for. It kind of also goes to show how different the music industry is today to what it was like back in the mid-90s because they sat on this song for a long time. Yeah, well, as part of the lead-up to the release, they actually attended the Brit Awards in February 1996. So they were kind of like planted everywhere for people to know that, you know, they were the next big thing. They sat at a table with their manager and Annie Lennox. They also ran into the soon-to-be British Prime Minister Tony Blair, who Jerry asked, do you want to be in our music video? (laughs) He said, no. Now, speaking of, the video for Wannabe dropped a few weeks before the single actually came out. Now, the memorable video, which shows the girls running through a posh party and just generally being menaces, was a massive hit with their new fans. Like the video was predominantly shown on a British cable TV channel called The Box. And at its peak, it was shown up to 70 times a week on the channel. Now, The Box reported that at one point... 15% of their 250,000 weekly request phone calls came from viewers for Wannabe. Wow. So that's nearly 40,000 people requesting Wannabe per week before the song's out. And also how bizarre that you would release the music video before you release the song. But I guess it speaks to, you know, the CD market. Once the song was officially released on June 26, 1996, 
practically everything was in place for this song to explode. To celebrate the release, Jerry purchased a gift for each Spice Girl too. She purchased five identical gold rings, each engraved with the words Spice One of Five. Oh, I love it. Now, the girls had also been working hard on their individual images within the Spice Girls ever since the first showcase that they did as Touch. And by the time Wannabe came out, they had settled into their kind of designated personas, which is, of course, and was, of course, an exaggerated version of who they felt like they were at the time. Their manager, Simon Fuller, also agreed that the individual members should each have unique identities, as he clarified in an interview years later. If you like pink and fluffy and your mum is your best friend, then be pink 24-7. Have fluffy on you all the time. (laughs) If you're the rowdy northern girl who has no airs and graces, sexy and dominant and noisy, then be that. They just didn't have nicknames yet. Yeah. So to coincide with the release, the Spice Girls were interviewed by Top of the Pops magazine, a popular music mag in Britain at the time. The girls went all the way down to the magazine's office and performed their wannabe flash mob routine that had worked so well in the past. Only this time, it wasn't quite as effective. They were only met, apparently, with half-hearted applause. Feeling sorry for the girls after their lukewarm reception, Top of the Pops gave them a tiny mention in print. It was a super, super small mention. It wasn't even like a page. Yeah, Jennifer Cawthron was the writer who interviewed the girls and the person who was largely credited with coming up with their nicknames. She said, The girls are already like cartoon characters of themselves, so it only took about 10 seconds to come up with the nicknames. Victoria was posh spice because she was wearing a Gucci-style mini dress and seemed pouty and reserved. Emma wore pigtails and sucked a lollipop, so obviously she was baby spice. Mel C, the whole time, was leaping around in her tracksuit, so we called her sporty spice. I named Mel B scary spice because she was so shouty. And Jerry was ginger spice simply because of her hair. Not much thought went into that one. Mm. Now, apparently, Jerry would have rather the nickname Sexy Spice. (laughs) I mean, who wouldn't? But it wasn't to be. Largely also because they didn't want to alienate a young audience. Now, of course, looking back at these nicknames from a 2023 perspective, there's been a fair bit of conversation about the racial connotations of Mel B's nickname, Scary Spice. Yeah, Mel B, for her part, doesn't necessarily think that way about her nickname. She said to the Huffington Post years on, I'm very kind of in your face. I was even more so back then. I was what, 17, 18? Like what? What do you want? So I guess I could have come off as scary, but I like my name. Yeah, despite that, she has been open about the racism she's experienced within the Spice Girls and in particular how she struggled to try and make the other girls understand what she went through compared to them. She told The Independent, So much of the racism you feel as a person of colour growing up in a largely white culture is not spoken aloud. There were times when there was obvious racism. I was asked to leave a designer clothes shop in Sun City when I was with all the other girls. Of course, all the girls had a go at the assistant because they were so shocked. It's pretty awful to think that I wasn't actually shocked because if you're brown, there's always a part of you that expects some confrontation. Yeah, she went on. I think it's almost impossible for white people to understand what it is to be black or brown. It did bother me. I remember once really thinking how I could make Jerry understand. I got her to come back to Leeds with me and we went to one of those really old school underground blues and bass clubs that all the black kids in the area went to. It was tiny and really packed and when we were standing there, I said to Jerry, look around and tell me what you see. And she looked around and said, everyone in here is black except me. And I said, that's what it's like for me nearly every day. I'm always the only brown girl in the group. 
that was quite an important moment for me. Yeah. Now, posh, baby, sporty, scary, and ginger. Once the girls grew more famous, the tabloids took these nicknames and ran with them. It's kind of how I refer to these women now, even still. And eventually these names became totally synonymous with the Spice Girls brand. Once it was officially released, Wannabe shot to number three on the UK charts in the first week. The following week, it hit number one. Once it was released worldwide, Wannabe went to number one in 35 countries. The Spice Girls had arrived, but this mish was all just the beginning. Oh, what a ride. I'm so excited to do episode two and three. I know. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) If you are desperate to listen to part two or part three right now, if you're in the car, if you've still got time to kill, you can listen to them right now. All you have to do is subscribe to Shane Moore on Spotify or Apple. You get all the Scandal series in one go so you can binge them at the same time. Perfect for a road trip. Perfect for a road trip. If that's not for you, that's totally fine. We'll be back in your ears on Monday for part two. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, guys. Make sure you hit that follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to us right now. That really helps us out in the charts. Other than that, hope you're enjoying your summer. Yeah, big thank you as always to our researcher Eilish Gilligan, our audio producer Annabelle Lee. Back in your ears on Monday, guys. Bye. See ya. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.